0: The Secret Societies of All Ages and Countries by Charles William Heckathorn, Volume 1. Narrated by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. From the extraordinary nature of the effects, we may infer the extraordinary nature, grandeur, and permanency of the causes, hence their connection. Varying predominance and mutual attraction escape all analysis. Mystery surrounds the obscure fecundation. Sects draw vigor from the most opposite sentiments. The most exalted as well as the meanest elements concur in forming this giant, a cyclopean and black fusion of all that seethes, boils, and ferments in social viscera. G. De Castro. Preface For many years, the fascinating subject of secret societies had engaged my attention, and it had long been my intention to collect, in a comprehensive work, all the information that could be gathered from numerous, often remote, and sometimes almost inaccessible sources, concerning one of the most curious phases of the history of mankind. These secret organizations, religious, political, and social, which have existed from the most remote ages down to the present time. Before, however, I had arranged and digested my materials, a review in the Athenium, number 2196, directed my attention to the Italian work Il Mondo Secreto by Signor de Castro whom I have since then had the pleasure of meeting at Milan. I procured the book and intended at first to give a translation of it, but though I began as a translator, my labors speedily assumed a more independent form. Much, I found, had to be omitted from an original colored by a certain political bias and somewhat too indulgent to various Italian political sects who in many instances were scarcely more than hordes of brigands. Much, on the other hand, had to be added from sources, chiefly English and German, unknown to the Italian author. Much had to be placed on a different basis and in another light. And again, many societies not mentioned by Signor de Castro had to be introduced to the reader. Such as the Garduna, the Chauffeurs, Finians international okipa ku klux inquisition wahhabis so that with these additions and the amplifications of sections in the original italian forming frequently entirely new articles the work as it is now presented to the english public though in its framework retaining much of its foreign prototype may yet claim the merit of being not only essentially original With the most comprehensive account of secret societies extant in English, French, German, or Italian, the leading languages of Europe, for whatever has been written on the subject in any one of them, has been consulted and put under contribution. In English, there is no work that can at all compete with it. For the small book published in 1836 by Charles Knight and entitled Secret Societies of the Middle Ages, embraces four societies only. Anxious to utilize my latest memoranda, I have taken advantage of the MS, having for some time been in the publisher's hands, before the second volume went to press, to insert several additional sections, though at the expense of methodical arrangement, or to give supplemental details from information collected during my recent 12 months' wanderings in Italy, the country par excellence of secret societies. The student who wishes for more ample information will have to consult the list of authorities given at the head of each book, as it was thought best not to encumber the text with footnotes, which would have swelled the work to at least twice its present extent. The reader may rest satisfied that few statements are made which could not be supported by numerous and weighty authorities though dealing as we do here with societies whose very existence depended on secrecy, and which therefore, as a matter of policy, left behind them as little documentary evidence as possible. The old distich applies with peculiar force. What is hits is history, and what is missed is mystery. Again, bearing in mind that the imperative compass of the work Exacted a concise setting forth of facts, ranging as the subject does over a surface so vast, I have been careful to interrupt the narrative only by such comments and reflections as would seem almost indispensable for clearing up obscurities or supplying missing historical links. It may at first appear as if some societies had improperly been inserted in this work as secret societies. The Freemasons, for instance, members of secret associations, it might be objective, are not in the habit of proclaiming their membership to the world. But no Freemason is ashamed or afraid of avowing himself such. Nay, he is rather proud of the fact, and given to proclaim and somewhat obtrusively. Yet the most rabid Celt, who wishes to have a hand in the regeneration of his native land by joining the Fenian Brotherhood, has sense enough to keep his affiliation a profound secret from the uninitiated. But the rule I have followed in adopting societies as secret was to include in my collection all such as had or have secret rites and ceremonies, kept from the outer world, though the existence of the society itself be no secret at all. In fact, no association of men can for any length of time remain a secret. Since, however anxious the members may be to shroud themselves in darkness and remain personally unknown, the purpose for which they band together must always betray itself by some overt acts. And wherever there is an act, the world surmises an agent, and if none that is visible can be found, a secret one is suspected. The thugs, for instance, had every desire to remain unknown. Yet the fact of the existence of such a society was suspected long before any of its members were discovered. On the principle also of their being the propounders of secret doctrines, or doctrines clothed in language understood by the adepts alone, alchemists and mystics have found places in this work, and the Inquisition, though a state tribunal, had its secret agents and secret procedure and may therefore justly be included in the category of secret societies. Secret societies, religious and political, are again springing up on many sides. The religious may be dismissed without comment, as they are generally without novelty or significance, but those that have political objects ought not to be disregarded as without importance. The international, Fenians, Communists, Nihilists, Wahhabis, are secretly aiming at the overthrow of existing governments in the present order of things. The murders of Englishmen perpetrated by native Indians point to the machinations of secret societies in British India. Before the outbreak of the Great Indian Mutiny, English newspaper correspondents spoke rather contemptuously of some religious ceremony observed throughout British India of carrying small loaves from village to village, this ceremony was the summons to the people to prepare for the general rising. Hence the proceedings of the natives should be closely watched. The first volume and a portion of the second, having passed through the press while the author was in Italy, the revisal of the last proofs had to be confided to another hand. Hence some errata will be found in those portions of the work. An evil, almost unavoidable under the circumstances, in a text so full of proper names, whose correct spelling frequently is scarcely fixed, and containing numerous quotations which could only be verified by reference to the originals whence they were taken, which in this case was clearly impossible. A list of the more important errata with their corrections has been appended at the end of Volume 2. For the sake of clearness and of facilitating reference... The text has been divided throughout in short sections with appropriate headings, and numbered continuously. November 1874 Introduction The cause which I knew not, I searched out. Job XXIX 16 INTELLIGIBILITY AND NATURE OF SECRET SOCIETIES For those true thinkers who look upon history as a tissue of wondrous design, there is nothing accidental in the life of the world. For them, the appearance and action of secret societies are no singular and inexplicable phenomenon, no transitory form, no unexpected and fugitive effort, but the intelligible and foreseen result of known causes. Secret societies were once as necessary as open societies. The tree presupposes a root. Besides the empire of might, the idols of fortune, the fetishes of superstition, there must in every age and state have existed a place where the empire of might was at an end, where the idols were no longer worshipped, where the fetishes were derided. Such a place was the closet of the philosopher, the temple of the priest, the subterranean cave of the Secretary two Classifications of Secret Societies. Secret societies may be classed under the following heads number one religious, such as the Egyptian or Eleusinian Mysteries, two military, knights templars, three judiciary Vemgurek. 4. Scientific, alchemists. 5. Civil, Freemasons. 6. Political, Carbonari. But the line of division is not always strictly defined. Some that had scientific objects combined theological dogmas therewith, as the Rosicrucians, for example, and political societies must necessarily influence civil life. We may therefore more conveniently range secret societies in the two comprehensive divisions of religious and political. Number 3. Religious Societies Religion has had its secret societies from the most ancient times. They date, in fact, from the period where the true religious knowledge, which, be it understood, consisted in the knowledge of the constitution of the universe, and the eternal power that it produced and the laws that maintained it possessed by the first men, began to decay among the general mass of mankind. The genuine knowledge was, to a great extent, preserved in the ancient mysteries, though even these were already a degree removed from the first primeval native wisdom, since they represented only the type instead of the archetype, namely the phenomenon of outward temporal nature, instead of the realities of the inward, eternal nature of which this visible universe is the outward manifestation. Since the definition of this now-recovered genuine knowledge is necessary for understanding, much that was taught in the religious societies of antiquity, we shall further on enter into fuller details concerning it. 4. Political Societies Politically secret societies were the provident temperers and safety valves of the present and the powerful levers of the future. Without them, the monologue of absolutism alone would occupy the drama of history, appearing moreover without an aim, and producing no effect, if it had not exercised the will of man, by inducing reaction and provoking resistance. Every secret society is an act of reflection, therefore of conscience. For reflection accumulated and fixed is conscience. In so far, secret societies, in a certain manner, the expression of conscience in history. For every man has in himself a something which belongs to him, and which yet seems as if it were not a thing within him, but, so to speak, without him. This obscure something is stronger than he, and he cannot rebel against its dominion, nor withdraw himself or fly from its search. This part of us is intangible. The assassins steal, the executioner's axe cannot reach it, allurements cannot seduce, prayers cannot soften, threats cannot terrify it. It creates in us a dualism which makes itself felt as remorse. When man is virtuous, he feels himself one, at peace with himself, that obscure something does not. That obscure something does neither oppress nor torture him, just as in physical nature the powers of a man's body, when working in harmony, are unfelt. But when his actions are evil, his better part rebels. Now, secret societies are the expression of this dualism reproduced on a grand scale in nations. They are that obscure something of politics acting in the public conscience and producing a remorse which shows itself as secret society, an avenging and purifying remorse. It regenerates through death, and it brings forth light through the fire, out of darkness, according to eternal laws. No one discerns it, yet every man may feel it. It may be compared to an invisible star, whose light, however, reaches us, to the heat coming from a region where no human foot will ever be placed, but which we feel and can demonstrate with a thermometer. Indeed, one of the most obvious sentiments that gives rise to secret societies is that of revenge. But good and wise revenge, different from personal rancor, unknown where popular interests are in question, the desires to punish institutions and not individuals, to strike ideas and not men, the grand collective revenge the inheritance that fathers transmit to their children, a pious legacy of love that sanctifies hatred and enlarges the responsibility and character of man. For there is a legitimate and necessary hatred, that of evil, which forms the salvation of nations. Woe to the people that knows not how to hate, because evil is intolerance, hypocrisy, superstition, slavery, 5. AIMS OF POLITICAL SOCIETIES The aim of the sectaries is the erection of the ideal temple of progress, to fecundate, to fecundate in the bosom of sleeping or enslaved peoples the germs of a future liberty. This glorious edifice, it is true, is not yet finished, and perhaps never will be, but the attempt itself invests secret societies with a moral grandeur whereas, without such aim, their struggle would be debased into a paltry, egotistical party fight. It also explains the existence of secret societies, though it does not perhaps justify it. For I am asked to give my honest opinion. I do not think that secret societies will ever accomplish what they promise. As a lover of justice, I cannot but approve of the theoretical striving after liberty and equality, But as a thinking being, judging by the experience of the past and the nature of things, in which good and evil must exist forever, and forever be at war, such striving must also forever remain without any adequate practical result. The cause of liberty, indeed, may be and often has been, nay, is daily being benefited, But if universal, social, and political equality were established today, it would scarcely last till tomorrow. It is undeniable that as long as men have unequal gifts and unequal passions, so long will be equality among men remain a dream. And it would be difficult to name any country that derived substantial and permanent benefit from the operation of any secret political society. In fact, neither of the two states enjoying the greatest freedom, political and social, Visa, England and Switzerland, ever had any secret societies of national comprehensiveness or historical importance. It is true when the Swiss in 1308 made themselves free from the Austrian yoke, 30 men had formed a pact to effect that deliverance. They were conspirators, and even then their plans were greatly modified by the conduct and death of Gessler. And Tell did not kill the latter because he, Tell, was a member of a secret society, and was bound to do so, but because the Austrian governor had done him a personal wrong by aiming at his child's life. 6. Religious Secret Societies But the earliest secret societies were not formed for political, so much as for religious purposes, embracing every art and science. Wherefore, religion has truly been called the archaeology of human knowledge. Comparative mythology reduces all the apparently contradictory and opposite creeds to one primeval, fundamental, and true comprehension of nature and her laws. All the metamorphoses, oppositions and conversations of one or more gods, recorded in the sacred books of the Hindus, Parsis, and other nations, are indeed founded on simple physical facts, disfigured and misrepresented intentionally or accidentally. The true comprehension of nature was the prerogative of the most highly developed of all races of men, viz. the Aryan races, whose seat was on the highest point in the mountain region of Asia, To the north of the Himalayas, south of these lies the Vale of Kashmir, whose eternal spring, wonderful wealth of vegetation and general natural features, best adapted to represent the earthly paradise and the blissful residence of the most highly favoured human beings. 7. Most Perfect Human Type So highly favoured, precisely because nature is so favoured, a spot could only produce a superior type, which being, as it were, the quintessence of that copious nature, was one with it, and therefore able to apprehend it and its fullness. For as the powers of nature have brought forth plants and animals of different degrees of development and perfection, so they have produced various types of men in various stages of development, The most perfect being, as already mentioned, the Aryan or Caucasian type, the only one that has a history, and the only one that deserves our attention when inquiring into the mental history of mankind. For even where the Caucasian comes in contact and intermingles with a dark race, as in India and Egypt, it is the white man with whom the higher and historical development begins. Number 8. Causes of High Mental Development I have already stated that climatic and other outward circumstances are favourable to high development. This is universally known to be true of plants. But man is only a plant endowed with consciousness and mobility, and therefore it must be true of him. And in fact, experience proves it. His organs, and especially his brain, attain to the highest perfection and therefore he is most fully able to apprehend nature and understand its working. Hence, he can never be an ignorant barbarian, and hence he must be, from the very first, have possessed a knowledge of superior, even to that he is now so proud of. For, as I have shown elsewhere, all barbarism among white races is only the sequel of a perished civilization. In the same publication I have also demonstrated what this knowledge was and how it came to be partly lost or perverted. But as this work would be incomplete without least a portion of the explanations given in that publication, I must quote so much from these articles, as will suffice to show that man once possessed a true knowledge of nature and her working, and that this is the reason why the mysteries of the most distant nations had so much in common dogmatically and ritually, and why in all so much importance was attached to certain figures and ideas, and why all were funereal. The sanctity attributed in all ages and all countries to the number seven has not been correctly explained by any known writer. The elucidations I shall offer on this point will show that the conformity with each other, on the religious and scientific doctrines of nations far apart, must be due to their transmission from one common source though the enigmatical and mystical forms in which this knowledge was preserved was gradually taken for the facts themselves. The reader will now see that these remarks, the object of which he may not have perceived at first, are not irrelevant. We cannot understand the origin and meaning of what was taught in the mysteries without a clear apprehension of the man's primitive culture and knowledge. Number 9. Primitive Culture From what precedes it will be evident that I am no disciple of the school that holds that man has raised himself from a state of barbarism to his present civilization. No, I belong to those who, at a distance of time which startles thought, discern the light of a high mental culture and transcendent powers. As a rule, prehistoric ages seem obscure, and men fancy that at every retrogressive step they must enter into greater darkness. But if we proceed with our eyes open, the darkness recedes like a horizon as we seem to approach it. New light is added to our light. New suns are lit up. New auroras arise before us. The darkness, which is only light compacted, is dissolved into its original viz. light. And as outwardness implies multiplicity and inwardness unity, there are many branches but only one root. So all religious creeds, even those most disguised in absurd and debasing rites and superstitions, the nearer we trace them to their source, appear in greater and greater purity and nobility, with more exalted views, doctrines, and aims. For as Tegner says, the fundamental tone of feeling is ever the same. And as the same poet expresses it, antiquity is, that Atlantis that perished with higher powers and higher aims. Thus the ethic codes of Buddha and Zoroaster have been regarded as anticipations of the teaching of Christianity, so that even St. Augustine remarked, What is now called the Christian religion existed among the ancients, and was now absent from the beginning of the human race until Christ came, from which the Time the true religion which existed already began to be called Christian. Again, through all the more elevated creeds, there were certain fundamental ideas which, differing and even sometimes distorted in form, may yet, in a certain sense, be regarded as common to all. Such were the belief in a Trinity, the dogma that the Logos, or Omnific Word, created all things by making the nothing manifest, the worship of light, The Doctrine of Regeneration by Passing Through the Fire and Others 10. The True Doctrines of Nature and Being But what was the knowledge on which the teaching of the mysteries was founded? It was no less than that of the ground and genitor of all things, the whole state, the rise, the workings, and the progress of all nature, together with the unity that pervades heaven and earth. A few years ago, this was proclaimed with great sound of trumpets as a new discovery. Although so ancient an author as Homer speaks, in the eighth book of the Iliad, of the golden chain connecting heaven and earth the golden chain of sympathy, the occult, all pervading, all uniting influence called by a variety of names such as Anima Mundi, Mercurius Philosophorum, Jacob's Ladder, the Vital Magnetic Series the magician's fire, etc. This knowledge, in course of time, and through man's love of change, was gradually distorted by perverse interpretations, and overlaid, or embroidered, as it were, with fanciful creations of man's own brain. And thus arose superstitious systems, which became the creed of the unthinking crowd, and have not lost their hold on the public mind, even to this day keeping in spiritual thraldom, myriads who tremble at a thousand phantoms conjured up by priestcraft and their own ignorance, whilst... number 11. Fundamental Principles of True Knowledge Possessed by the Ancients From what was taught in the Mysteries, we are justified in believing that the First Men knew what follows. Though the knowledge is already dimmed and perverted in the Mysteries, the phenomena of outward nature only being presented in them instead of the inward spiritual truths symbolized. 1. All around us we behold the evidences of a life permeating all things. We must needs, therefore, admit there is a universal, all-powerful, all-sustaining life. 2. Behind or above the primeval life, which is the basis of the system, may be beheld the unmoved mover, the only supernatural ends. Who, by the word or Logos, has spoken forth all things out of himself, which does not imply any pantheism. For the words of the speaker, though proceeding from him, are not the speaker himself. 3. The universal life is eternal. 4. Matter is eternal. 5. That matter is light. And 6. Whatsoever is outwardly manifest must have existed ideally from all eternity in an archetypal figure reflected in what Indian mythology calls the mirror maja, whence are derived the terms magus, magia, magic, image, imagination, all implying the fixing of the primeval structureless living matter in a form, figure, or creature. In modern theosophy, the Mirror Maja is called the Eternal Mirror of Wonders, the Virgin Sophia, ever bringing forth, yet ever a virgin, the analog of the Virgin Mary. 7. The Eternal Life, which thus manifests itself in matter, is an intelligent life, and this visible universe is ruled by the same laws that rule the invisible world of forces. 8. These laws, according to which the life manifests itself, are the seven properties of eternal nature, six working properties, and the seventh, in which the six, as it were, rest or are combined into perfect balance or harmony, i.e., paradise. These seven properties, the foundation of all the septenary numbers running through the natural phenomena and all ancient and modern knowledge, are one, attraction, two, reaction or repulsion. 3. Circulation, 4. Fire, 5. Light, 6. Sound, 7. Body or Comprisal of All. 9. The septenary is divisible into two ternaries or poles with the fire symbolized by a cross in the middle. These two poles constitute the eternal dualism or antagonism in nature, the first three forming matter or darkness and producing pain and anguish i.e., hell, cosmically winter, the last three being filled with light and delight, i.e., paradise, cosmically summer. 10. The fire is the great chemist, or purifier and transmuter of nature, turning darkness into light. Hence the excessive veneration and universal worship paid to it by the ancient nations, the priests of Zoroaster, wearing a veil over their mouths for fear of polluting the fire with their breath. By the fire here, of course, is meant the Empyrean, electric fire, whose existence and nature were tolerably well-known to the ancients. They distinguished the moving principle from the thing moved, and called the former the igneous ether or spirit, the principle of life, the deity, Eupiter, Vulcan, Tha, Nepth. 11. All light is born out of darkness, and must pass through the fire to arrive at the light. There is no other way but through darkness, or death, or hell, an idea which we find enunciated and represented in all the mysteries. As little as a plant can come forth into the beauty of blossoms, leaves, and fruit, without having passed through the dark state of the seed and being buried in the earth, where it is chemically transmuted by the fire, so little can the mind arrive at the fullness of knowledge and enlightenment without having passed through a stage of self darkening and imprisonment, in which it suffered torment, anguish, in which it was, as in a furnace, in the throes of generation. Number 12 Key to Mystic Teaching that the first men possess the knowledge of the foregoing facts is certain, not only from the positive and inferential teachings of the mysteries, but also from the monuments of antiquity, which in grandeur of conception and singleness of ideal aim, excel all that modern art or industry or even faith has accomplished. By bearing this in mind, the reader will get a deeper insight into the true meaning of the dogmas of initiation than was attainable by the epops themselves he will also understand that the reason why there is so much uniformity in the teaching of the mysteries was the fact that the dogmas enunciated were explanations of universal natural phenomenon alike in all parts of the earth in describing the ceremonies of initiation i shall therefore abstain from appending to them a commentary or exegesis but simply referred to the paragraphs of this introduction as to a key. 13. Mystic Teaching Summarized It was theological, moral, and scientific. Theologically, the initiated were shown the error of vulgar polytheism and taught the doctrine of the unity and of a future state of reward and punishment. Morally, the precepts were summoned up in the words of Christ, Love thy neighbor as thyself and in those of Confucius, if thou be doubtful whether an action be right or wrong, abstain from it altogether. Scientifically, the principles were such as we have detailed above, with their natural and necessary deductions, consequences, and results. 14. How true knowledge came to be lost. Though I have already on several occasions alluded to the fact that the true knowledge of nature possessed by the first men had in course of time become corrupted and intermixed with error, it will not be amiss to show the process by which this came to pass. It is well known that the oldest religious rites, of which we have any written records, were Sabian or Helioarchite, The sun, moon, and stars, however, to the true original epochs, were merely the outward manifestations and symbols of the inward powers of the eternal life. But such abstract truths could not be rendered intelligible to the vulgar mind of the increasing multitudes necessarily more occupied with the satisfaction of material wants, and hence arose the personification of the heavenly bodies and terrestrial seasons depending on them. Gradually, what in the first instance had been a mere human figure of a symbol, came to be looked upon as the representation of an individual being that had actually lived on earth. Thus, the sun to the primitive men was the outward manifestation of the eternal. All-sustaining, all-saving life in different countries and ages, this power was personified under the names of Krishna, Pho, Osiris, Hermes, Hercules, and so on. And eventually these latter were supposed to have been men that really existed, and had been deified on account of the benefits they had conferred upon mankind. The tombs of these supposed gods were shown, such as the Great Pyramid, said to be the tomb of Osiris. Feasts were celebrated, the object of which seemed to be renewed every year, the grief occasioned by their loss. The passing of the sun through the signs of the zodiac gave rise to the myths of the incarnations of Vishnu, the labors of Hercules and co. His apparent loss of power during the winter season and the restoration thereof at the winter solstice to the story of the death, descent into hell, and resurrection of Osiris and of Mithras. In fact, what was pure nature wisdom in one age became mythology in the next and romance in the third taking its characteristics from the country where it prevailed. The number seven being found everywhere, and the knowledge that its prevalence was the necessary consequence of the seven properties of nature being lost, it was supposed to have reference only to the seven planets then known. 15. Original Spirit of the Mysteries and Results of Their Decay In the mysteries, all was astronomical, but a deeper meaning lay hid under the astronomical symbols. While bewailing the loss of the sun, the epops were in reality mourning the loss of that light whose influence is life. Whilst the working of the elements according to the laws of elective affinity produces only phenomenon of decay and death, the initiated strove to pass from under the dominion of the bond woman. Night into the glorious liberty of the free woman Sophia, to be mentally absorbed into the deity i e into the light, the dogmas of ancient nature wisdom were set before the pupil, but their understanding had to arise as inspiration in his soul. It was not the dead body of science that was surrendered to the epop, leaving it to the chance whether it quickened or not, but the living spirit itself was infused into him. For this reason, because more had to be apprehended from within by inspiration than from without by oral instruction, the mysteries gradually decayed. The ideal yielded to the realistic, and the merely physical elements, Sabism and Archism, became their leading features. The frequent emblems and mementos in the sanctuary of death and resurrection, pointing to the mystery that moments of highest psychical enjoyment, are the most destructive to bodily existence, i.e. that the most intense delight is a glimpse of paradise. These emblems and mementos eventually were applied to outward nature only, and their misapprehension led to all the creeds of superstitions that have filled the earth with crime and woe, sanguinary wars, internecine internecine cruelty and persecution of every kind. Bloodthirsty fanatics, disputing about words whose meaning they did not understand, maintaining antagonistic dogmas false on both sides, have invented the most fiendish tortures to compel their opponents to adopt their own views. While the two Mohammedan sects of Omar and Ali will fight each other to decide whether ablution ought to commence at the wrist or the elbow— they will unite to slay or to convert the Christians. Nay, even these latter, divided into sects without number, have distinguished themselves by persecutions as cruel as any ever practiced by so-called pagan nations. Not satisfied with attempting to exterminate by fire and sword Turks and Jews, one Christian sect established such a tribunal as the Inquisition, whilst its opponents, scarcely less cruel when they had the power, deprived the Roman Catholics of their civil rights and occasionally executed them. Their mutual hatred even attends them in their missionary efforts. Very poor in the results, in spite of the sensational reports manufactured by the societies at home for extracting money from the public. To mention but one instance, a leading missionary endeavored to prejudice the Polynesians in advance against some expected Roman Catholic missionaries by translating Fox's Book of Martyrs into their language and illustrating its scenes by the aid of a magic lantern. 16. The Mysteries Under Their Astronomical Aspect But seeing that the mysteries, as they have come down to us and are still perpetuated, in a corrupted and aimless manner in Freemasonry, have chiefly an astronomical bearing, a few general remarks on the leading principles of all will save a deal of needless repetition in describing them separately. In the most ancient Indian creed, we have the story of the fall of mankind by tasting of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and their consequent expulsion from paradise. And, read in its mysterious and astronomical aspect, the narrative of the fall, as given in the book of Genesis, would assume some such form as the following. Adam, which does not mean an individual, but the universal man, mankind, and his companion Eve, which means life, having passed spring and summer in the Garden of Eden, necessarily reach the season when the serpent Typhon, the symbol of winter, points out in the celestial sphere that the reign of evil, of winter, is approaching. Allegorical science, which insinuated itself everywhere, caused malum, evil, also to mean an apple, the produce of autumn, which indicates that the harvest is over and that man in the sweat of his brow must again till the earth. The cold season comes and he must cover himself with the allegorical fig leaf. The sphere revolves, the man of the constellation Boots, the same as Adam, preceded by the woman, the virgin, carrying in her hand the autumnal branch laden with fruit, seems to be allured or beguiled by her. A sacred bough or plant is introduced into all the mysteries. We have the Indian and Egyptian lotus, the fig tree of Attis, the myrtle of Venus, the mistletoe of the Druids, the golden bough of Virgil, the rose tree of Isis, and the golden ass. Apulius is restored to his natural form by eating roses, the box of palm Sunday, and the acacia of Freemasonry. The bow in the opera Roberto il Diavolo is the mystic bow of the mysteries. 17. Astronomical Aspects Continued The Mysteries Funeral In all the mysteries we encounter a god, a superior being, or an extraordinary man suffered death to recommence a more glorious existence. Everywhere, the remembrance of a grand and mournful event plunges the nations into grief and mourning, immediately followed by the most lively joy. Osiris is slain by Typhon, Uranus by Saturn, Suzerman by Sudra, Adonis by a wild boar, Ormuds is conquered by Eremanes— Attis and Mithras and Hercules kill themselves, Abel is slain by Cain, Balder by Loki, Bacchus by the giants, the Assyrians mourn the death of Thamuz. the Scythians and the Phoenicians that of Asmon, all nature that of the Great Pan, the Freemasons that of Hiram, and so on. The origin of this universal belief has already been pointed out. 18. UNIFORMITY OF DOGMAS The doctrine of the unity and trinity was inculcated in all the mysteries. In many religious creeds, we meet with a kind of travesty of the Christian dogma, in which a virgin is seen bringing forth a savior, and yet ever remaining a virgin. In the more outward sense, that virgin is the Virgo of the zodiac, and the savior brought forth is the sun in the most inward sense it is the eternal ideal wherein the eternal life and intelligence the power of electricity and the virtue of the tincture the first the sustainer the latter the beautifier of apprehensible existence are as it were corporified in the countless creatures that fill this universe yea in the universe itself and the virgin remains a virgin and her own nature is not affected by it just as the air brings forth sounds, the light colors, the mind ideas, without any of them being intrinsically altered by the production. We certainly do not find these principles so fully and distinctly enunciated in the teaching of the ancient mystagogues, but a primitive knowledge of them may be inferred from what they did teach. In all the mysteries, light was represented as born out of darkness. Thus reappears the deity called now Maja, Bawani, now Kali, Isis, Ceres, Proserpina, Persephone, the Queen of Heaven, is the night from whose bosom issues life, into which the life returns, a secret reunion of life and death. She is, moreover, called the Rosie. And in the German myths, the Rosy is called the restoring principle of life. She is not only the night, but, as Mother of the Sun, she is also the Aurora behind whom the stars are shining. When she symbolizes the earth as Ceres, she is represented with ears of corn. Like the sad Proserpina, she is beautiful and lustrous, but also melancholy and black. Thus she joins night with day, joy with sadness, the sun with the moon, heat with humidity, the divine with the human. The ancient Egyptians often represented the deity by a black stone, and the black stone Kaaba, worshipped by the Arabs, and which is described as having originally been whiter than snow, and more brilliant than the sun, embodies the same idea, with the additional hint that light was anterior to darkness. In all the mysteries, we meet with the cross as a symbol of purification and salvation, The numbers 3, 4, and 7 were sacred. In most of the mythologies, we meet with two pillars. Mystic banquets were common to all, as also the trials by fire, water, and air. The circle and the triangle, single and double, everywhere represented the dualism or polarity of nature. In all the initiations, the aspirant represented the good principle, the light, overcome by evil, the darkness. And his task was to regain his former supremacy, to be born again or regenerated, by passing through death and hell and their terrors, that were scenically enacted during the neophyte's passage through seven caves, or ascent of seven steps. All this, in its deepest meaning, represented the eternal struggle of light to free itself from the encumbrance of materiality it has put on its Passage through the seven properties of eternal nature. And in its secondary meaning, when the deeper one was lost to mankind, the progress of the sun through the seven signs of the zodiac, from Aries to Libra, as shown in the Royal Arch Masonry, and also in the latter with seven steps of the Night of Kadosh. In all the mysteries, the officers were the same, and personified astronomical or cosmical phenomena In all, the initiated recognized each other by signs and passwords. In all, the conditions for initiation were the same, maturity of age and purity of conduct. Nero, on this account, did not dare, when in Greece, to offer himself as a candidate for initiation into the Eleusinian Mysteries. In many, the chief hierophant was compelled to lead a retired life of perpetual celibacy, That he might be entirely at liberty to devote himself to the study and contemplation of celestial things. And to accomplish this abstraction, it was customary for the priests, in the earlier periods of their history, to mortify the flesh by the use of certain herbs, which were reputed to possess the virtue of repelling all passionate excitements, to guard against which they had even occasionally adopted. Severer and more decided precautions. In all countries where mysteries existed, initiation came to be looked upon as much a necessity as afterwards baptism among Christians, which ceremony indeed is one that had been practiced in all the mysteries. The initiated were called epops, those that see things as they are, whilst before they were called mists, meaning quite the contrary. In all, we find greater and less mysteries, an exoteric and an esoteric doctrine, and three degrees. To betray the mysteries was everywhere considered infamous, and the heaviest penalties were attached to it. Hence also, in all initiations, the candidate had to take the most terrible oaths that he would keep the secrets entrusted to him. Alcibiades was banished and consigned To the Furies for having revealed the mysteries of Ceres, Prometheus, Tantalus, Oedipus, Orpheus, suffered various punishments for the same reason. 19. Secret Societies No Longer Needed Thanks to secret societies themselves, they are now no longer needed, at least not in the realms of thought. In politics, however, Circumstances will arise in every age to call them into existence, and though they seldom attain their direct object, yet are they not without influence on the relations between ruler and ruled, advantageously for the latter in the long run, though not immediately? But thought, religious, philosophical, and political is free, if not as yet in every country, it is so certainly in the lands inhabited by the Saxon races. And though the bigot and the fool would crush it, the former because it undermines its absolutism, and the latter because it interferes with his ease, yet shall it only grow stronger by the opposition. Science becomes the strong bulwark against the invasion of dogmatic absurdities. And there is growing up a scientific church, wherein knowledge, and not humility, labor, and not penance and fasting are considered essentials. Various phenomena in modern life are proofs of this. But if man, during ages of intellectual gloom, annihilated himself in behalf of the great defied all, he will not, in better times, deny God what he owes him. In his homage to God, he studied and respects himself, destroys the fetishes, and combats for truth, which is the word of God. He could not deny divine without denying himself. In ancient times, the mind rose from religion to philosophy. In our times, by a violent reaction, it will ascend from philosophy to religion. And the men whose religion is so arrived at, whose universal sympathy has cast out fear, such men are the true regenerators of mankind, and need neither secret signs nor passwords to recognize each other. In fact, they are opposed to, to all such devices, because they know that liberty Consists in publicity. Wherever liberty rules, secrecy is no longer necessary to effect any good and useful work. Once it needed secret societies in order to triumph, now it wants open union to maintain itself. Not that the time has come when every truth may be uttered without fear or calumny and cavil and opposition, especially in religious matters. Far from it, as some recent notable instances have shown. The words of Faust still have their application. Who dare call the child by its right name? The few that knew something of it and foolishly opened their hearts, revealing to the vulgar crowd their views, were ever crucified or burnt. Certes, bodily crucifying or burning are out of the question now, but statecraft and especially priestcraft. Still have a few thumb-screws and red-hot irons to hold a man's hands or sear his reputation, wherefore, though I doubt the policy and in most cases the success of secret association, yet I cannot withhold my tribute of admiration for those who have acted or do act, up to the words of the poet Lowell. They are slaves who dare not speak for the fallen and the weak. They are slaves who will not choose, hatred, scoffing, and abuse. Rather than in silence shrink from the truth, they needs must think. They are the slaves who dare not be, in the right with two or three. Book 1. Ancient Mysteries Of man's original relation to nature, whence we start... In order to render the essentials of physical science and nature comprehensible in their inmost depth, we find but obscure hints. In the mysteries and the holy initiations of those nations that as yet were nearest to the primeval people, the mind apprehends a few scarcely intelligible sounds, which arising deep from the nature of our being, move it mightily how our hearts are wrung by the mournful sounds of the first human race and of nature, how they are stirred by an exalted nature worship and penetrated by the breath of an eternal inspiration. We shall hear that suppressed sound from the Temple of Isis, from the speaking pillars of Ihot, in the hymns of the Egyptian priests. On the lonely coast under the black rocks of Iceland, the Edda will convey us a sound from the graves, and fancy shall bring us face to face with those priests who by a stern silence have concealed from future ages the holy science of their worship. Yea, the eye shall yet discover the lost features of the noble past in the altars of Mexico, and on the pyramid which saw the blood and tears of thousands of human victims. V. Schubert Chapter 1. The Magi 20. Derivation of the term Magus. Magus is derived from Maja, the mirror wherein Brahm, according to Indian mythology, from all eternity beholds himself and all his powers and wonders. Hence also are terms Magia, magic, image, imagination, all implying the fixing in the form, figure, or creature. These words being synonymous of the potencies of the primeval, structureless, living matter. The Magus, therefore, is one that makes the operations of the eternal life his study. 21. Antiquity of the Magi The Magi, as the ancient priests of Persia were called, did not constitute a doctrine or religion only. They constituted a monarchy. Their power truly was that of kings. And this fact is still commemorated by the circumstance that the Magi, recorded to have been led by the star to the cradle of Jesus, are just as frequently called kings as Magi. As sages, they were kings in the sense of Horus. Their pontifical reign preceded the ascendancy of Assyria, Media, and Persia. Aristotle asserts to it have been more ancient than the foundation of the kingdom of Egypt. Plato, unable to reckon it by years, computes it by myriads. At the present day, most writers agree in dating the rise of the reign of the Magi, 5,000 years before the Trojan War. 22. Zoroaster. The founder of the order was Zoroaster, who was not, as some will have it, a contemporary of Darius but lived nearly seventy centuries before our era. Nor was his home in India, but in Bactriana, which lies more to the east beyond the Caspian Sea. Close to the mountains of India, along the great rivers Oxus and Exartes, so that the Brahmins, or priests of India, may be called the descendants of the Magi. 23. DOCTRINE OF ZOROASTER His doctrine was the most perfect and rational of all those that in ancient times were the objects of initiation, and has more or less survived in all successive theosophies. Traces of it may be found in the ancient Zendivasta, not the book now passing by that name which is merely a kind of Bravari, which entered into all the details of nature. The doctrine is not the creed of the two opposite but equally powerful principles, as has been asserted, for Eremanes, the principle of evil, is not equal with Oramazes, which is good. Evil is not uncreated and eternal. It is rather transitory and limited in power. And Plutarch records an opinion, which Anon we shall see confirmed, That Eremanis and his angels shall be annihilated. That dualism is not eternal. Its life is in time, of which it constitutes the grand drama, and in which it is the perennial cause of motion and transformation. This is true philosophy, and fully in accordance with the fundamental principles of nature. The supreme being, or eternal life, is elsewhere called time without limits. For no origin can be assigned to him, enshrined in his glory, and possessing properties and attributes inapprehensible by our understanding. To him belongs silent adoration. Creation had a beginning by means of emanation. The first emanation from the Eternal was the Light, whence issued the King of Light, Oromazes. By means of speech Oromazes created the pure world, of which he is the Preserver and Judge. Oramazes is a holy and celestial being, intelligence and knowledge. Oramazes, the firstborn of time without limits, began by creating, after his image and likeness, six genii, called Amshapans, that surround his throne and are his messengers to the inferior spirits and to men, being also to the latter types of purity and perfection. The second series of creations by Oromazes was that of the 28 Izads that watch over the happiness, innocence, and preservation of the world. Models of virtue, interpreters of the prayers of men. The third host of pure spirits is more numerous and forms that of the Farohars, the thoughts of Oromazes or the ideas conceived by him before proceeding to the creation of things. Not only the Farohars of holy men and innocent infants stand before Oromazes, but this latter himself, his Farohar, the personification of his wisdom and beneficent idea, his reason, his logos. These spirits hover over the head of every man, and this idea passed over to the Greeks and Romans, and we meet with it again in the familiar spirit of Socrates, the evil genius of Brutus, and the genius comes of Horus. The threefold creation of good spirits was the necessary consequence of the contemporaneous development of the principle of evil. The second born of the eternal, Arimanes, emanated like Oramazes from the primitive light and was pure like it, but being ambitious and haughty, he became jealous. To punish him, the supreme being condemned him to dwell for 12,000 years in the region of darkness a time which was to be sufficient to end the strife between good and evil. But Aramanes created countless evil genii that filled the earth with misery, disease, and guilt. The evil spirits are impurity, violence, covetousness, cruelty, the demons of cold hunger, poverty, leanness, sterility, ignorance, and the most perverse of all, Pitash, the demon of calumny, Oromazes, after a reign of 3,000 years, created the material world in six periods, in the same order as they are found in Genesis, successively calling into existence the terrestrial light, not to be confounded with celestial, the water, the earth, plants, animals, and man. Eramanes assisted in the formation of earth and water because the darkness had already invaded those elements, and Oromazes could not conceal them. Arimanes also took part in the creation and subsequent corruption and destruction of man, whom Oromazes had produced by an act of his will and by the word. Out of the seed of that being, Oromazes afterwards drew the first human pair, Messiah and Messiaen. But Aramanes first seduced the woman and then the man, leading them into evil chiefly by the eating of certain fruits. And not only did he alter the nature of man, but also that of animals, opposing insects, serpents, wolves, and all kinds of vermin to the good animals, thus spreading corruption over the face of the earth. But Aramanes and his evil spirits are eventually to be overcome and cast out from every place. And in the stern combat, just and industrious men have nothing to fear, for according to Zoroaster, labor is the exterminator of evil and that man best obeys the righteous judge of all who assiduously tills the earth and causes it to bring forth harvests and fruit-bearing trees. At the end of twelve thousand years, when the earth shall cease to be afflicted by the evils brought upon it, by the spirits of darkness, three prophets shall appear and assist man with their power and knowledge, restoring the earth to its pristine beauty, judging the good and the evil, and conducting the first into a region of ineffable bliss. Arimanes and the captive demons and men shall be purified in a sea of liquid metal, and the law of Oromazes shall rule everywhere. It is scarcely necessary to point out to the reader the astronomical bearing of the Theogony of Zoroaster. The six good genii represent the six summer months, while the evil genii stand for the winter months. The 28 izads are the days of a lunar month but theosophically, the six periods during which the universe was created refer to the six working properties of nature. 24. The Light Worshipped We have seen that Zoroaster taught light to be the first emanation of the eternal life. Hence, in the Parsi writings, light, the perennial flame, is the symbol of the deity or uncreated life. Hence, the Magi and Parsis have been called fire worshippers. But the former saw and the latter see in the fire not a divinity, but simply the cause of heat and motion, thus, anticipating the most recent discoveries of physical science, or rather, remembering some of the lost knowledge. The Parsis did not form any god. To call him the one true god, they did not invoke any authority extrinsic to life. They did not rely on any uncertain tradition, but amidst all the recondite forces of nature, they chose the one that governs them all, that reveals itself by the most tremendous effects. 25. Origin of the word deus, God. In this sense, the Magi, as well as the Chinese, had no theology, or they had one that is distinguished from all others. Those Magi that gave their name to occult science, magic, performed no sorcery and believed in no miracles. In the bosom of Asiatic immobility, they did not condemn motion, but rather considered it as the glorious symbol of the eternal cause. Other castes aimed at impoverishing the people and subjecting it to the yoke of ignorance and superstition, but thanks to the Magi, the Indian Olympus, peopled with monstrous creatures, gave place to the conception of the unity of God, which always indicates progress in the history of thought. The text of the most ancient Zend literature acknowledges but one creative ends of all things, and his name Tao signifies light and wisdom, and is explained by the root dare, to shine. Whence are derived all such words as etc. The conception of Deity was, indeed, primarily that of the Bright One, whence all the Sanskrit Deus, sky, which led to many mythological fables. But the original idea was founded on a correct perception of the origin and nature of things, for light is truly the substance of all things, all matter is only a compaction of light. Thus, the Magi founded a moral system and an empire. They had a literature, a science, and a poetry. Five thousand years before the Iliad, they put forth the Zendavesta, three grand poems, the first ethical, the second military, and the third scientific. 26. Mode of Initiation The candidate for initiation was prepared by numerous lustrations with fire, water, and honey. The number of probations he had to pass through was very great, and ended with a fast of 50 days' continuance. These trials had to be endured in a subterranean cave, where he was condemned to perpetual silence and total solitude. This novitiate, in some instances, was attended with fatal effects— In others, the candidate became partially or wholly deranged. Those who surmounted the trials were eligible to the highest honors. At the expiration of the novitiate, the candidate was brought forth into the Cavern of Initiation, where he was armed with enchanted armor by his guide, who was the representative of Simorg, a monstrous griffin, and an important agent in the machinery of Persian mythology and furnished with talismans that he might be ready to encounter all the hideous monsters raised up by the evil spirits to impede his progress. Introduced into an inner apartment, he was purified with fire and water and put through the seven stages of initiation. First, he beheld a deep and dangerous vault from the precipice where he stood, into which a single false step might throw him down to the throne of dreadful necessity the first three properties of nature. Groping his way through the mazes of the gloomy cavern, he soon beheld the sacred fire at intervals flash through its recesses and illuminate his path. He also heard the distant yelling of ravenous beasts, the roaring of lions, the howling of wolves, the fierce and threatening bark of dogs. But his attendant, who maintained a profound silence, hurried him forwards, towards the quarter whence these sounds proceeded, and at the sudden opening of a door he found himself in a den of wild beasts, dimly lighted with a single lamp. He was immediately attacked by the initiated in the forms of lions, tigers, wolves, griffins, and other monstrous beasts, from whom he seldom escaped unhurt. Thence he passed into another cavern, shrouded in darkness, where he heard the terrific roaring of thunder and saw vivid and continuous flashes of lightning, which in streaming sheets of fire rendered visible the flitting shades of avenging genii, resenting his intrusion into their chosen abodes. To restore the candidate a little, he was next conducted into another apartment, where his excited feelings were soothed with melodious music and the flavor of grateful perfumes. On his expressing his readiness to proceed through the remaining ceremonies, a signal was given by his conductor, and three priests immediately made their appearance, one of whom cast a living serpent into his bosom as a token of regeneration. And a private door having been opened, there issued forth such howlings and cries of lamentation and dismay as struck him with new and indescribable emotions of terror. On turning his eyes to the place whence these noises proceeded, he beheld exhibited in every appalling form the torments of the wicked in Hades. Thus he was passed through the devious labyrinth consisting of seven spacious vaults, connected by winding galleries, each opening with a narrow stone portal, the scene of some perilous adventure, until he reached the sacellum or Holy of Holies, which was brightly illuminated and which sparkled with gold and precious stones. A splendid sun and starry system moved in accordance with delicious music. The Archmagus sat in the east on a throne of burnished gold, crowned with a rich diadem decorated with myrtle boughs, and habited in a tunic of bright cerulean hue. Round him were assembled the presulis and dispensers of the mysteries. By these the novice was received with congratulations, and after having entered into the usual engagements for keeping secret the rites of Zoroaster, the sacred words were entrusted to him, of which the tetractus, or name of God, was the chief. The tetractus of Pythagoras is analogous to the Jewish tetragrammaton, or name of the deity in four letters. The number four was considered most perfect because in the first four properties of nature, are compromised and implied all the rest. Wherefore, also the first four numbers, summed up, make the decad, after which all is only repetition. Twenty-seven, myth of Rustam. This progress was denominated ascending the ladder of perfection, and from it has arisen the tale of Rustam the Persian Hercules, who mounted on the monster Rakshi, which is the Arabic name of Simurg, undertakes the conquest of Mazandaran, celebrated as a perfect earthly paradise. Having amidst many dangers fought his way along the road of seven stages, he reaches the cavern of the white giant, who smites all that assail him with blindness. But Rustam overcomes him, and with three drops of the giant's blood restores sight to all his captives. The symbolic three drops of blood had their counterparts in all the mysteries of the ancient world. In Britain, the emblem was three drops of water. In Mexico, as in this legend, three drops of blood. In India, a belt composed of three triple threads. In China, the three strokes of the letter Y, etc. The blindness with which those who seek the giant are smitten, of course, refers to the emblematic mental blindness of the aspirant to initiation. Chapter 2. The Mithraics. 28. Mysteries of Mithras. Upon the trunk of a religion so spiritual and hostile to idolatry, which undertook iconoclastic expeditions into Babylonia, Assyria... Syria, and Libya, which vindicated the pure worship of God, destroying by means of the sword of Cambyses, the Egyptian priesthood, which overthrew the temples and idols of Greece, which gave to the Israelites the Pharisees, which appears so simple and pure as to have bestowed on the Parsis the appellation of the Puritans of antiquity, and on Cyrus, that of the anointed of the Lord, on this trunk, there were afterwards engrafted idolatrous branches, as perhaps the Brahminic and certainly the Mithraic worship, the origin of which latter Dupuis places at 4,500 years before Christ. 29. Origin of Mithraic Worship Mithras is a beneficent genius presiding over the sun, the most powerful Izad, invoked together with the sun and not at first confounded with it, the chief mediator and intercessor between Oromazes and man. But in course of time, the conception of this Mithras became perverted, and he usurped the attributes of divinity. Such usurpation of the rank of the superior deity on part of the inferior is of frequent occurrence in mythology. It suffices to refer to Siva and Vishnu in India, Serapis in Egypt, Jupiter in Greece. The perversion was rendered easy by confounding the symbol with the thing symbolized, the genius of the sun with the sun itself, which alone remained in the language, since the modern Persian name of the sun Mir represents the regular modification of the Zend Mithras. The Persian Mithras must not be confounded with that of India, for it is in undoubted that another Mithras, different from the Zendic, from the most ancient times was the object of a special, mysterious worship, and that the initiated knew him as the sun. Taking the letters of the Greek word Mithras and their numerical value, we obtain the number 365, the days of the year. The same holds good for Abraxas, the name which Basilides gave to the deity, and further of Bellinos, the name given to the sun in Gaul. 30. Dogmas, etc. On the Mithraic monuments, we find representations of the globe of the sun, the club and bull, symbols of the highest truth, the highest creative activity, the highest vital power. Such a trinity agrees with that of Plato, which consists of the supreme good, the word, and the soul of the world, with that of Hermes Trismegistus, consisting of light, intelligence, and soul, with that of Porphyry, which consists of father, word, and supreme soul. According to Herodotus, Mithras became the Milita of Babylon, the Assyrian Venus, to whom was paid an obscene worship, as to the female principle of creation, the goddess of fecundity, of life, one perhaps with Anatus, the Armenian goddess. The worship of the Persian Mithras, or Apollo, spread over Italy, Gaul, Germany, Britain, and expiring polytheism opposed to the Sun Christ, the Sun Mithras. 31. Rites of Initiation the sanctuaries of this worship were always subterranean, and in each sanctuary was placed a ladder with seven steps, by which one ascended to the mansions of Felicity. The initiations into this degree were similar to those detailed in the foregoing section, but, if possible, more severe than into any other, and few passed through all the tests. The Festival of the God was held towards the middle of the month of Mir, October, and the probationer had to undergo long and severe trials before he was admitted to full knowledge of the mysteries. The first degree was inaugurated with purifying lustrations, and a sign was set on the neophyte's brow, whilst he offered to the god a loaf and a cup of water. A crown was presented to him on the point of a sword, and he put it on his head, saying, Mithras is my crown. In the second degree, the aspirant put on armor to meet giants and monsters, and a wild chase took place in the subterranean caves. The priests and officers of the temple, disguised as lions, tigers, leopards, bears, wolves, and other wild beasts, attacked the candidate with fierce howlings. In these sham fights, the aspirant ran great personal danger, though sometimes the priests caught a tartar. Thus, we are told that the Emperor Commodus, on his initiation, carried the joke too far, and slew one of the priests who had assailed him in the form of a wild beast. In the next degree, he put on a mantle on which were painted the signs of the zodiac. A curtain then concealed him from the sight of all. But this being withdrawn, he appeared surrounded by frightful griffins. After passing through other trials, if his courage did not fail him, he was hailed as a lion of Mithras, in allusion to the zodiacal sign in which the sun attained its greatest power. We meet with the same idea in the degree of master mason. The grand secret was then imparted. What was it? At this distance of time it is difficult to decide, but we may assume that the priest communicated to him the most authentic sacerdotal traditions. The best accredited theories concerning the origin of the universe, and the attributes, perfections, and works of Oromazes. In fact, the Mithraic mysteries represent the progress of darkness to light. According to Guinot, Mithras is love with regard to the eternal; he is the son of mercy with regard to Oromazes and Arimanes, the fire of love. Thirty-two. Rights derived from magism this was not the sole heresy. the only secret society that issued from the womb of magism, and its rites gradually became so corrupt as to serve as a cloak for the most licentious practices, which were at length sanctioned and even encouraged in the mysteries. Further, it became an axiom in religion that the offspring of a son and a mother was the best calculated for the office of a priest traces of magism and are also found in the speculations of manes the religion of love and the secret history of the templars chapter 3 brahmins and gymnosophists number 33 vulgar creed of india the indian religion whether we look on it as an adulteration of magism or as the common trunk of all Asiatic theosophy, offers so boundless a wealth of deities that no other in this respect can approach it. This wealth is an infallible sign of the mental poverty and grossness of the people, who, ignorant of the laws of nature and terrified at its phenomena, acknowledged as many supernatural beings as there were mysteries for them. The Brahmins reckon up to 300,000 gods— A frightful host that have kept Indian life servile and stagnant, perpetuated the divisions of caste, upheld ignorance and weighed like an incubus on the breasts of their deluded dupes, and turned existence into a nightmare of grief and servitude. 34. Secret Doctrines But in the secret sanctuary, these vain phantoms disappear, and the initiated are taught to look upon them as countless accidents and outward manifestations of the first cause. The Brahmins did not consider the people fit to apprehend and preserve in its purity the religion of the spirit. Hence they veiled it in these figures, and also invented a language incomprehensible to the vulgar, but which the investigations of Oriental scholars have enabled us to read— and to perceive that the creed of India is one of the purest ever known to man. Thus, in the second chapter of the first part of the Vishnu Purana, it is written, God is without form, epithet, definition, or description, free from defect, incapable of annihilation, change, grief, or pain. We can only say that He, that is, the eternal being, is God. Vulgar men think that God is in the water. The more enlightened, in celestial bodies, the ignorant, in wood and stone, but the wise, in the universal mind. The Maha says, Numerous figures, corresponding with the nature of diverse powers and quality, were invented for the benefit of those who are wanting in sufficient understanding. Again, we have no notion of how the eternal being is to be described. He is above all the mind can apprehend, above nature, that only one that was never defined by any language and gave to language all its meaning. He is the Supreme Being, and no partial thing that man worships. This Being extends over all things. He is mere spirit without corporeal form, without extension of any size, unimpressionable, and without any organs. He is pure, perfect, omniscient, omnipresent the ruler of the intellect. He is the soul of the whole universe. 35. Brahma and Buddha. The polytheism of India branched off into two great sects, Buddhists and Brahmanists, each possessing distinctive characteristics. Allusions to this separation are found in the legend of the temple. And there are other divisions in the theological nomenclature which respectively referred to the traditions of those grand sections. The Indians, the Greeks, except Pythagoras, who was to some extent a Buddhist, and the Britons were Brahmanists, while the Chinese, Japanese, Persians, and Saxons were Buddhists. The Buddhists were Magians, the Brahmanists Sabians. The famous Buddhist doctrine of nirvana, or nihilism, so totally misapprehended, as long as it was supposed to mean total annihilation, is profoundly theosophical, and really means the perfect absorption into the deity, though Buddha does not allow of a personal god or creator. By the deity, he means the light, the eternal liberty, and therefore calls nirvana the highest stage of spiritual liberty and bliss. The individual soul, on leaving the body in which it was imprisoned, returns into the universal soul, just as the solar light. Imprisoned in a piece of wood, when this is burnt, returns into the universal ocean of light. On this doctrine was afterwards engrafted the false belief in the metapsychosis, or transmigration of souls, and the misanthropic system of self-renunciation, which in India led to the self-torturings of fakers and other fanatics, and which finds its analogies in Christian communities in the asceticism of fasts, penances, macerations, solitude, flagellation, and all the mad practices of monks, anchorets, and other religious zealots. 36. Asceticism This asceticism, founded on the above notion, viz that the absolute or all is the real existence, and that individual phenomena, especially matter in all its forms, are really nothing, i.e. mere phantasms, and to be avoided, as increasing the distance from the absolute, and that absorption into the deity is to be obtained, even in this life, by the maceration of the body, was, and even now is prevalent in India, where it was carried in thousands of instances further than mere self-torture, even to death. When, at the festival of the dread goddess Bovani, the wife of Siva, her ponderous image was borne on a car with cutting wheels. To the Ganges, a crowd of frantic beings wreathed with flowers, joyous as if they went to the nuptial altar, would cast themselves under the wheels of the car, offering themselves amidst the sounding of trumpets, as voluntary sacrifices to be cut to pieces by the wheels. And in various sects, asceticism has led to the adoption of many strange practices. In the Comte de la Reine de Navarre, there is a passage which at some length refers to a special mode adopted by monks and other men for the mortification of the flesh. 37. Gymnosophists We have very few notices of the gymnosophists, the magi of Brahmanism, the most severe custodians of the primitive law, and originally most free from imposture. They spread over Africa, and in Ethiopia they lived as solitaires, and revived on the banks of the Nile many phases of Asiatic theosophy. Priests errant, they were reported to carry with them a secret doctrine of which the simplicity of their lives and the purity of their morals might be considered as the outward manifestation, though in after times they became one of the most debauched and immoral sects in India. They were almost naked, hence their name, naked, wise, and lived on herbs. But their own austerity did not render them harsh towards other men, nor unjust as regarded other common conditions of life. They believed in one, only God, the immortality of the soul and its transmigration. And when old age or disease prostrated them, they ascended the funeral pile, deeming it ignominious, to let years or evils afflict them. Alexander saw one of them close his life in this manner. The priestly colleges of Ethiopia and Egypt maintained constant relations. Osiris is an Ethiopian divinity. Every year, the two families of priests met on the boundaries of the two countries to offer common sacrifices to Ammon, another name for Jupiter, and celebrate the festival which the Greeks called Heliotrapeza, or Table of the Sun. Amidst the predominant fetishism of Africa, produced partly by climate and partly by the same circumstances that gave rise to the Indian fetishism, We cannot help admiring that colony of thinkers which long resisted the progress of despotism and whose destruction was the revenge of intolerance and tyranny. 38. Places for Celebrating Mysteries The mysteries, as in other countries, were celebrated in subterranean caverns, here excavated in the solid rock and surpassing in grandeur of conception and finish of execution anything to be seen elsewhere. The temples of Elephanta, Ellera, and Salsette, consisting of large halls and palaces, chapels, pagodas, cells for thousands of priests and pilgrims, adorned with pillars and columns, obelisks and bas-reliefs, gigantic statues of deities, elephants and other sacred animals, all carved out of the living rock, are especially noteworthy. In the Sassalam, only accessible to the initiated, the supreme deity was represented by the lingam, which was used more or less by all ancient nations to represent his creative power, though in India it was also typified by the petal and calyx of the lotus. 39. Initiation The periods of initiation were regulated by the increase and decrease of the moon, and the mysteries were divided into four degrees and the candidate might be initiated into the first at an early age of eight years. He was then prepared by a Brahmin, who became his spiritual guide for the second degree, the probationary ceremonies of which consisted in incessant occupation in prayers, fastings, ablutions, and the study of astronomy. In the hot season, he sat exposed to five fires, four blazing around him and the sun above. In the rains, he stood uncovered. In the cold season, he wore wet clothing. To participate in the high privileges which the mysteries were believed to confer, he was sanctified by the sign of the cross and subjected to the probation of the pastos, the tomb of the sun, the coffin of Hiram, darkness, hell, all symbolical of the first three properties. His purification being completed, he was led at night to the cavern of initiation. This was brilliantly illuminated, and there sat the three chief hierophants in the east, west, and south, representing the gods Brahma, Vishnu, and Siva, surrounded by attendant mystagogues, dressed in appropriate vestments. The initiation was begun by an apostrophe to the sun, addressed by the name of Purush, here meaning the vital soul or portion of the universal spirit of Brahm, And the candidate, after some further preliminary ceremonies, was made to circumambulate the cavern three times and afterwards conducted through seven dark caverns. During which period, the wailings of Mahadeva for the loss of Siva were represented by dismal howlings. The usual paraphernalia of flashes of light, of dismal sounds, and horrid phantoms were produced to terrify and confuse the aspirant. Having arrived at the last cavern, the sacred conch was blown, the folding doors thrown open, and the candidate was admitted into an apartment filled with dazzling lights, ornamented with statues with emblematic figures richly decorated with gems and scented with the most fragrant perfumes. This sassalum was intended to represent paradise and was actually so-called in the Temple of Elora With eyes riveted on the altar, the candidate was taught to expect the descent of the deity in the bright, pyramidal fire that blazed upon it. And in a moment of enthusiasms, thus artificially produced, the candidate might indeed persuade himself that he actually beheld Brahma, seated on the lotus, with his four heads and arms representing the four elements and the four quarters of the globe, and bearing in his hands the emblems of eternity and power the circle and fire 39a brahman brahma the reader will have noticed in one case i say brahm and in the other brahma the latter is the body of the former which is the eternal life the terms correspond with those of abyssal deity and virgin sophia of christian theosophy 40 the ineffable name om The candidate was now supposed to be regenerated and was invested with the white robe, tiara, and the sacred belt. A cross was marked on his forehead and a tau upon his breast. The salagram, or marginal black stone, to ensure to him the perfection of Vishnu, and the serpent stone and antidote against the bite of serpents, were delivered to him. And lastly, he was entrusted with the sacred name, which signified the solar fire, and united in its comprehensive meaning the great Trimurti, or combined principle on which the existence of all things is founded. The word was Om, or in a trilateral form, A-U-M, Om, to represent the creative, preserving, and destroying power of the deity, personified in Brahma, Vishnu, and Siva, the symbol of which was an equilateral triangle. To this name, as the royal archmasons, to that of Iabulon, they attributed the most wonderful powers, and it could only be the subject of silent but pleasing contemplation, for its pronunciation was said to make earth and heaven tremble, and even the angels of heaven to quake with fear. The emblems around and the apparetta of the mysteries were then explained, and the candidate instructed that by means of the knowledge of Om he was to become one with the deity. With the Persians the syllable hom meant the tree of life, a tree and a man at the same time, the dwelling place of the soul of Zoroaster, and with them also, as with the Indians, it was forbidden on pain of death to reveal it. In this secret name involving the rejection of polytheism and compromising the knowledge of nature, we have the golden thread that unites ancient and modern secret societies. 41. The Lingam One of the emblems found in the Sassalam, and which in fact is found everywhere on the walls of Indian temples, was the Lingam, which represented the male principle, and which passed from India to Egypt, Greece, and Scandinavia. The worship of this symbol could not but lead to great abuses, especially as regarded the gymnosophists. 42. The Lotus The Lotus, the lily of the Nile, held sacred also in Egypt, was the great vegetable amulet of Eastern nations. The Indian gods were always represented as seated on it. It was an emblem of the soul's freedom when liberated from its earthly tabernacle, the body for it takes roots in the mud deposited at the bottom of a river, vegetates from the germ to a perfect plant, and afterwards, rising proudly above the waters, it floats in the air, as if independent of any extraneous aid. It is placed on a golden table as the symbol of Siva, on the top of Mount Minu, the holy mountain of India, the centre of the earth, worshipped by Hindus, Tartars, Manchurians and Mongols. It is supposed to be in northern India to have three peaks composed of gold, silver, and iron, of which reposes the shrine Didi Brahma, Vishnu, and Siva. Geographically, this mountain is evidently the tableland of Tartary, whose southern boundary is formed by the Himalayas. This custom of accounting a three peaked mountain holy was not confined to India alone but prevailed also among the Jews. Thus Olivet, near Jerusalem, had three peaks, which were accounted the residence of the deity, Chemosh, Milcom, and Ashtoreth. In Zechariah, the feet of the Almighty are placed on the two outer peaks of this mountain during the threatened destruction of Jerusalem. While the mountain itself is made to split asunder at the center peak from east to west, leaving a great valley between the divided parts. Chapter 4. Egyptian Mysteries 43. Antiquity of Egyptian Civilization All Egypt is an initiation. A long and narrow strip of land, watered by immense floods and surrounded by immense solitudes, such is Egypt. Very high and steep rocks protected it from the incursions of the nomadic tribes. And thus a valley, a river, and a race sufficed to create, if not the most ancient, at least one of the most ancient and illustrious cultures, a world of marvels at a time when Europeans went naked and dyed their skins, as Caesar found the ancient Britons, and when the Greeks, armed with bows and arrows, led a nomadic existence. The Egyptians, many thousand years before the Trojan War, had invented writing, as is proved, for instance, by the hieratic papyrus of the time of Ramses II, full of recipes and directions for the treatment of a great variety of diseases, and now in the Berlin Museum. They also knew many comforts of life, which our pride calls modern, and the Greek writers, whom the Egyptian priests called children, are full of recollections of that mysterious land, recording the Father Nile, Thebes with its hundred gates, the pyramids, Lake Moreau, the labyrinth, the Sphinx, and the statue of Memnon saluting the rising sun. 44. Temples of Ancient Egypt Egyptian chronology, the reproof and paragon of all others, is graven on imperishable monuments. But those obelisks, sacred to the sun, by their conical form like that of the flame, those labyrinths, those human-headed birds, typifying the intelligent soul, those scarabi, signifying creative power, those sphinxes, representing force, the lion or the sun and man, these serpents expressing life and eternity, those strange combinations of forms, those hieroglyphics, They long remained secret for us, and perhaps always were a secret for the Egyptian people, that, in fear and silence, erected the pyramids. All these symbols constituted the language of one of the vastest and most elaborate secret societies that ever existed. Penetrating into those gigantic temples which seem the work of an extinct race, different from ours, as fossil quadrupeds are different from those now living, Traversing those cloisters, which, after many windings, lead to the intermost sanctuary, we are seized by a singular thought, that of the silence and solitude which ever reigned within those edifices into which the people were not allowed to penetrate. Only the few were admitted, and we moderns are the first profane that have set foot within the hallowed precincts. The Temple of Luxor is the vastest on earth, six propylia with long files of columns and colossi and obelisks and sphinxes, six cloisters. Every new generation of kings for 70 centuries added some new portion and inscribed on the walls the history of its deeds, and every new addition removed the faithful further from the seat of the god. The marvel and mystery increased. The sixth propyleum is not finished. It is a chapter of history broken off in the middle and will never be completed. The walls and pillars of the temples were covered with religious and astronomical representations, and from the fact of many of these pictures showing human beings in various states of suffering and under torture, it has been assumed that the Egyptian ritual was cruel like the Mexican. But such is not the case. The pictures are only representations of the punishments said to be inflicted on the wicked in another life. 45. Egyptian Priests and Kings The priestly caste, possessing all the learning, ruled first and alone, but in its own defense it armed a portion of the population, the rest of it kept down by superstition, or disarmed and weakened it by corruption. To Plato, who saw it from a distance, This government seemed stupendous, and he idealized it. It was for him the city of God, the pattern republic. Nevertheless, as was inevitable, might rebelled against doctrine. The soldiery broke the reign of the priesthood, and by the side of the pontiffs arose the kings. Or to speak more correctly, the two series proceeded in parallels. That of the priests was not set aside. It had its palaces, the temples strong-like fortresses along the Nile, which were at the time splendid abodes, agricultural establishments, commercial depots, and caravan stations. Its members appointed and ruled the kings themselves, regulating the most minute acts of their daily conduct. They were the depositaries of the highest offices, and as the learned savans, magistrates, and physicians enjoyed the first honours, their chief colleges were at Thebes, Memphis, Heliopolis, and Sais. They possessed a great portion of the land, which they caused to be cultivated, paid no taxes, but collected tithes. They formed indeed the elect, privileged, and only free portion of the nation. 46. Exoteric and Esoteric Doctrines The priests were no followers of the idolatrous faith of the people but to have undeceived the latter would have been dangerous for themselves. The true doctrine of the unity of God, therefore, which was their secret, was only imparted to those that, after many trials, had been initiated into the mysteries. Their doctrines, like those of all other priesthoods, were therefore exoteric and esoteric, and the mysteries were of two kinds, the greater and the less, the former being the mysteries of Osiris and Serapis, the latter those of Isis. The mysteries of Osiris were celebrated at the autumnal equinox, those of Serapis at the summer solstice, and those of Isis at the vernal equinox. 47. Egyptian Mythology The want of space does not allow me to fully enter upon the vast subject of Egyptian mythology. Yet a few words thereon are necessary to render its bearing on the mysteries clear and also to show its connection with many of the rites of modern Freemasonry. That of the symbols and ceremonies of all the ancient creeds originally had a deep and universal cosmic meaning has already been shown. But at the time when the mysteries were most flourishing, that meaning was to a great extent lost, and a merely astronomical one substituted for it, as will be seen from the following explanations. Osiris, represented in Egypt by a scepter surmounted by an eye, to signify him that rules and sees, symbolizes the sun. He is killed by Typhon, a serpent engendered by the mud of the Nile. But Typhon is a transposition of Python, derived from the Greek word to putrefy, and means nothing else but the noxious vapors arising from the steaming mud. And thus, concealing the sun, Wherein, in the Greek mythology, Apollo, another name for the sun, is said to have slain Python with his arrows, that is to say, dispelled the vapors by his rays. Osiris, having been killed by Python, to which, however, the wider meaning of the sun's imaginary disappearance or death during the winter season was attached, Isis, his wife or the moon, goes in search of him and at last finds his body cut into 14 pieces, that is to say, into as many parts as there are days between the full moon and the new. She collects all the pieces, with one important exception, for which she made a substitution which gave rise to a worship resembling that of the lingam in India. But although to the vulgar crowd Isis was only the moon, to the initiated she was the universal mother, the primordial harmony and beauty, called in Egyptian... Iophis, which the Greeks turned into Sophia, whence the virgin Sophia of Theosophy. Hence also the many names by which Isis was known, indicating the multifarious aspects she necessarily assumed. Her image was worshipped at Sais under the emblem of Isis veiled, with this inscription I am all that has been, all that is, and all that will be, and no mortal has drawn aside my veil. Apis, or the bull, was an object of worship throughout all the ancient world, because formerly the zodiacal sign of the bull opened the vernal equinox. 48. The Phoenix The Egyptians began the year with the rising of the dog star, or Sirius, but making no allowance for the quarter of a day which finishes the year, The civil year every four years began one day too soon. So the beginning of the year went successively through every one of the days of the natural year in the space of four times 365, which makes 1,460 years. They fancied, they blessed, and made all the seasons to prosper by making them thus to enjoy one after another the Feast of Isis, which was celebrated along with that of Sirius though it was frequently very remote from that constellation. Wherefore, they introduced the image of dogs, or even the real and living animals, preceding the chariots of Isis. When in the fourteen sixty first year the feast again coincided with the rising of the star Sirius, they looked upon it as a season of plenty, and symbolized it by a bird of singular beauty, which they called Phoenix saying that it came to die upon the altar of the sun, and that out of its ashes there arose a little worm that gave birth to a bird perfectly like the preceding. 49. The Cross Among the astronomical symbols, we must not omit the cross. The sign really signifies the fire as we have seen. But in Egypt it was simply the nilometer, consisting of an upright pole with a crossbar that was raised or lowered according to the swelling or decrease of the river. It was frequently surmounted by a circle, typifying the deity that governs this important operation. Now the overflow of the Nile was considered the salvation of Egypt, and hence the sign came to be looked upon with great veneration and to have occult virtues attributed to it, such as the power of averting evil. Wherefore, the Egyptians hung small figures of the cross, or rather, the letter T, with a ring attached to it, the crooks and sada, round the necks of their children and of sick persons. They applied it to the string or fillets from which they wrapped up their mummies, where we still find it. It became, in fact, an amulet. Other nations adopted the custom, and hence the cross, or the letter T, whereby it was symbolized throughout the ancient world. It was supposed to be a sign or letter of more than ordinary significance. In the mysteries, the crux was the symbol of eternal life. But the cross was worshipped as an astronomical sign in other countries. We have seen that in India, the neophyte was sanctified by the sign of the cross. Which in most ancient nations was a symbol of the universe, pointing as it does to the four quarters of the compass, and the erection of temples on the cruciform principle is as old as architecture itself. The two great pagodas of Benares and Mathura are erected in the form of vast crosses, of which each wing is equal in extent, as is the Pyramid Temple of New Grange in Ireland. But the older and deeper meaning of the cross is shown in 11. It refers to the fire and the double quality everywhere observable in nature. The Triple Tau is the Royal Archmason's badge. 50. Places of Initiation In Egypt and other countries, India, Media, Persia, Mexico, the place of initiation was a pyramid erected over subterranean caverns. The pyramids, in fact, may be looked upon, considering their size, shape, and solidity, as artificial mountains covering buried cities. Their form not only symbolically represented the ascending flame, but also had a deeper origin in the conical form, which is the primitive figure of all natural products. and the Great Pyramid, the tomb of Osiris was erected in such a position and to such a height that at the spring and autumnal equinoxes, the sun would appear exactly at midday upon the summit of the pyramid, seeming to rest upon this immense pedestal, when his worshippers, extended at the base, would contemplate the Great Osiris as well when he descended into the tomb as when he arose from it triumphant. 51. Process of initiation. The candidate, conducted by a guide, was led to a deep, dark well or shaft in the pyramid and provided with a torch. He descended into it by means of a ladder affixed to the side. Arrived at the bottom, he saw two doors, one of them barred, the other yielding to the touch of his hand. Passing through it, he beheld a winding gallery, whilst the door behind him shut with a clang that reverberated through the vaults. Inscriptions like the following met his eye. Whose shall pass along this road alone and without looking back shall be purified by fire, water, and air, and overcoming the fear of death shall issue from the bowels of the earth to the light of day, preparing his soul to receive the mysteries of Isis. Proceeding onward, the candidate arrived at another iron gate guarded by three armed men, whose shining helmets were surmounted by emblematic animals, the Cerberus of Orpheus. Here the candidate had offered to him the last chance of returning, if so inclined. Electing to go forward, he underwent the trial by fire, by passing through a hall filled with inflammable substances in a state of combustion, and forming a bower of fire. The floor was covered with a grating of red hot iron bars, leaving however narrow intercesses where he might safely place his foot. Having surmounted this obstacle, he has to encounter the trial by water. A wide and dark canal, fed by the waters of the Nile, arrested his progress. Placing the flickering lamp upon his head, he plunges into the canal and swims to the opposite bank, where the greatest trial, that by air, awaits him. He lands upon a platform leading to an ivory door, bounded by two walls of brass. Into each one is inserted an immense wheel of the same metal. He in vain attempts to open the door. When, spying two large iron rings affixed to it, he takes hold of them. But suddenly the platform sinks from under him. A chilling blast of wind extinguishes his lamp. The two brazen wheels revolve with formidable rapidity and stunning noise whilst he remains suspended by the two rings over the fathomless abyss. But ere he is extended, the platform returns, the ivory door opens, and he sees before him a magnificent temple, brilliantly illuminated and filled with the priests of Isis, clothed in the mystic insignia of their offices, the hierophant at their head. But the ceremonies of initiation do not cease here. The candidate is subject to a series of fastings, which gradually increase for nine times nine days. During this period, a rigorous silence is imposed upon him, which if he preserve inviolate, he is at length fully initiated into the esoteric doctrines of Isis. He is led before the triple statue of Isis, Osiris, and Horus, another symbol of the sun, where he swears never to publish the things revealed to him in the sanctuary and first drinks the water of Leth, presented to him by the high priest to forget all he ever heard in his unregenerate state, and afterwards the water of Memosini to remember all the lessons of wisdom imparted to him in the mysteries. He is next introduced into the most secret part of the sacred edifice, where a priest instructs him in the application of the symbols found therein. He is then publicly announced as a person who has been initiated into the Mysteries of Isis, the first degree of the Egyptian rites. 52. Mysteries of Serapis These constituted the second degree. We know but little of them, and Apuleius only slightly touches upon them. When Theodosius destroyed the Temple of Serapis, There were discovered subterraneous passages and engines wherein, and wherewith, the priests tried the candidates. Porphyry, in referring to the greater mysteries, quotes a fragment of Theramones, an Egyptian priest, which imparts an astronomical meaning to the whole legend of Osiris, thus confirming what has been said above. And Herodotus, in describing the Temple of Minerva, where the rites of Osiris were celebrated, And speaking of a tomb placed in the most secret recesses, as in Christian churches there are cavalries behind the altar, says, It is the tomb of a god whose name I dare not mention. Cavalry is derived from the Latin word calvus, bald, and figuratively arid, dried up, pointing to the decay of nature in the winter season. 53. Mysteries of Osiris. These form the third degree or summit of Egyptian initiation and in these the legend of the murder of Osiris by his brother Typhon was represented and the god was personated by the candidate As we shall see hereafter the Freemasons exactly copy this procedure in the master's degree substituting for Osiris Hiram Abiff one of the three grand masters at the building of Solomon's temple The perfectly initiated candidate was called -um Alumjak, from the name of the deity, and the dogma of the unity of God was the chief secret imparted to him. How great and how dangerous a secret it was may easily be seen when it is borne in mind that centuries after the institution of the mysteries, Socrates lost his life for promulgating the same doctrine. 54. Isis. The many names assumed by Isis have already been alluded to. She was also represented with different emblems, all betokening her manifold characteristics. The lucid, round, the snake, the ears of corn, and the sistrum represent the titular deities of the Hecatean, Hecate, goddess of night, Bacchic, Eleusinian, and Ionic mysteries, that is, the mystic rites in general for whose sake the allegory was invented. The black pala in which she is wrapped embroidered with a silver moon and stars, denotes the time in which the mysteries were celebrated, namely, in the dead of night. Her names, to return to them, are given in the following words, put into her mouth by Apuleius in his Golden Ass, which is a description of the mysteries under the guise of a fable. Behold Lucius! I, moved by thy prayers, am present with thee. I, who am nature, the parent of things, the queen of all the elements, the primordial progeny of the ages, the supreme of divinities, the sovereign of the spirits of the dead, the first of the celestials, the first and universal substance, the uniform and multiform aspect of the uncreated essence, I who rule by my nod the luminous summits of the heavens, the breezes of the sea, and the silence of the realms beneath." and whose one divinity the whole orb of the earth venerates under a manifold form, by different rites and a variety of appellations. Hence the early Phrygians called me Pessinuntica, mother of the gods, the Attic Aborigines, Sersopian Minerva, the floating Cyprians, Paphian Venus, the arrow-bearing Cretans, Diana Dictina, the three-tongued Sicilians, Stygian Proserpine, and the Eleusinians, the ancient goddess Ceres. Some also call me Juno, others Bellona, others Hecate, and others Ramnusia. The Ethiopians, the Arai, the Egyptians, skilled in ancient learning, honor me with rites peculiarly appropriate and call me by my true name, Queen Isis. From this, it is quite clear that Isis was not simply the moon to the initiated. In the sanctuary, the multifarious forms are reduced to unity. The many idols are reduced to the one divinity, i.e., primeval power and intelligence. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for seven seventy-seven per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.